a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. What exactly is this program about? Well, believe it or not, that's a question I ask myself each and every day. Every single time I sit down and open this microphone, I have to wonder, what's it going to be? And and I'll tell you, my, my goal ultimately is to be a source of encouragement, bring some light, hopefully some clarity to things that uh, people are wondering about the world around us. But occasionally I find myself going, man, am I just stuck in a loop of bad news here? Because <laughs> there's... There's a lot of really concerning stuff taking place, but I never want to give the impression or I don't want you to come away feeling like, well, it's hopeless. I guess I'll just throw myself off a cliff because, you know, really there's just nothing I can do. In fact, uh, to the contrary, the reason I talk about some of the topics that I do, including the heavy topics that are sometimes unpleasant to acknowledge, is because I believe that you and I have essential roles to play right now. And, and I don't know what your role is, so it's not like, okay, you tell me, what, what exactly should I be doing? I can't answer that for you. But I can tell you, I'm, I'm quite convinced that uh, I, think, uh, I think God is a, is a great planner. And I believe that uh, he places people in certain times and places, prepares them or allows them to prepare if they choose to, to make a difference in a way that only they can. And that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, everything just goes smooth and nobody ever has any challenges and the world sees no tragedy or anything like that. No, that's that's kind of part of the fallen world that we live in. Those, those are all things that are part of this existence. But how much easier do things get when you have at least some grasp of the idea that you have a purpose, not just a purpose, not just, okay, here's a purpose, go play with it, but an essential purpose. You will move the needle in ways that nobody else can do. I don't know about you, but to me, that, that makes it easier to get through more difficult times. In fact, sometimes it makes it easier because you realize, hey, you know what? I was born for this time. I was, I was created and sent here with a, with a mission to, to make that difference. And again, I don't know what yours is. That's something each one of us has to figure out for ourselves. And, and if I can be really perfectly honest, I'm still working on figuring out what mine is. I got a pretty good line on it, I think. And I know there are times where I can feel my life snap into almost perfect synchronization with the universe. Now, if you haven't ever experienced that, that's pretty hard to, to understand. That sounds real metaphysical. But there's times when I know that I'm doing exactly what my creator would want me to do. In fact, put another way, there's times when I'm very certain and I, and I feel such absolute peace in my heart that I know that I am not only doing what I'm supposed to do, but I'm using the gifts and abilities that my creator gave me and has, has allowed me to develop over the course of my life in ways that, uh, that he'd want me to. 
So I'm not trying to put pressure on you. I'm not trying to say, well, I'll see you at Sunday school on Sunday. But I'm I'm saying that brings peace of mind when things are getting crazy. And they are getting pretty crazy. So, you know, for what it's worth, I hope you'll find a little bit of inspiration that, yes, it's an interesting world. We live in interesting times. We, we've, we've all lived long enough. We now are seeing interesting times. No avoiding it. But the key to thriving during those interesting times is to embrace whatever your purpose is. And, and for some people, this, the simplest way to find that out is going to require humbling yourself enough to get on your knees and ask God, what would you have me do? And then be prepared. Be prepared to get an answer and then act on that answer. If it's hard, if the answer makes you go, what? Really? That's probably the right answer. So, for what it's worth. Okay, let's jump into some topics today that uh, hopefully will shed a little bit greater light on what's happening in the world around us. I, I'm seeing and hearing more and more about artificial intelligence. And it's clear. It's Look, it's officially part of our world now. And it's likely going to change how we do a number of things. Think back, uh, if you would, even 25 years ago. When the internet was, you know, fairly new, and yeah, there were it had been around for a little bit, but people were just starting to to get in. You dial up, you know, get that familiar dial up connection sound. Who could have thought how much it would change how we do everything? Our shopping, how we pay bills, our you know ability to to work, our ability to communicate. Yeah, it's it's been a really dramatic shift and i think for the most part in pretty good ways well ai will possibly cause an even bigger shift in the way things are done than the internet and i think the internet probably qualifies as the single biggest disruptive technology to uh, to happen during my lifetime so far i haven't seen yet all the things that ai can do but i'm i'm pretty convinced it's it's going to be doing some pretty remarkable stuff and is doing remarkable stuff right now Well, I've got a great article here from uh, Dr. Deanne Waldman. She's an MD, and she has this reassurance that AI will not be replacing your doctor anytime soon. I don't know why, but this actually kind of gives me some comfort. She says, artificial intelligence has recently been touted as a revolutionary advance in clinical medicine that might save our failing healthcare system. A Google search for artificial intelligence in medicine or healthcare displays 99 pages of citations. Now, it's true, she says, that despite technical, security, financial, and regulatory issues of implementation, AI in medical practice can efficiently gather, organize, and statistically analyze quantitative data from multiple sources. In other words, stationary monitors, wearables, smartphones, even cardiac pacemakers. Furthermore, AI can list diagnostic as well as therapeutic options and proffer published clinical guidelines, advisories, and algorithms. She says AI can be especially helpful in public health. Applying AI to the early pandemic data in 2021 could have prevented Washington's ill-conceived disastrous response plan to COVID. However, in the clinical practice of medicine, she says AI cannot substitute for human care providers. In other words, nurses doctors, or therapists. So apparently a recent article promoting AI claimed the implementation of augmented medicine or AI is long awaited by patients because it allows for a greater autonomy and more personalized treatment. However, 
it has met with resistance from physicians who were not prepared for such an evolution of clinical practice. Now, in fact, both patients and physicians are extremely leery of AI in medicine. Most people are afraid of change, any change. New technologies induce anxiety, particularly when they're related to our bodies. But there's another stronger reason for public resistance to AI, and that is the need for human connection. In-person communication, physical closeness, and direct physical contact are important components of the healing process. The aphorism healing hands is not just wishful thinking. Any experienced, in other words, older clinical physician will confirm that laying on hands can be therapeutic and that direct human-to-human connection is always helpful. That's something AI can't provide to patients, no matter how well-programmed. Providers have a more compelling reason for eschewing AI, the limits of medical knowledge, and the nature of patients. Medical science isn't exactly like the hard sciences like math, physics, and chemistry. 2 plus 3 always equals 5. The speed of light is 299,792. <clears throat> I'm sorry, <clears throat> 2 billion. Nope, 2 million. Good Lord. It's 299,792,458 meters per second. No more, no less. The boiling point of copper is 2,595 degrees centigrade. Doesn't matter who does the addition, the color of light, or where the copper was mined. Now, in contrast... The knowledge base in hard sciences, to that knowledge base in hard sciences, medicine has no always answers. The precise mechanism of disease is not yet known. Doctors know that in diabetics, the insulin-producing cells inside the pancreas malfunction, but they don't know why they fail. And without knowing the root cause, no one treatment can work on all diabetics. So while there's a place for AI as an informational aid to clinical care providers, Dr. Deanne Waldman says AI cannot, should not, and must not supplant the human touch and brain. She gives some really good examples, too. I didn't have time to share all of these stories, but if you read the article, which I include in today's show notes for March 9th at thebrianhydeshow.com, you will see for yourself that uh, there's a reason why you need a human being on the other side of that stethoscope. I know. I, I think to, uh, you know, Star Trek and others, you know, the, or Star Wars, the robots that just uh, magically put people back together and heal them. Yeah, we're still a ways off from that. To the point that AI is helpful, hey, I welcome it. To the point that we outsource to it, mm, let's keep the humans involved, okay? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out to the sponsors who make this possible on a day-to-day basis. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Birelli.com. If you're a shooter, that's a link you really should click on. They have daily specials every single day, and some of them are really remarkably good. So I would say check them out. Also, TMCP Nation, that's the Modern Conservative Podcast, my friend John Harvey. Check out his podcast. Check out the merchandise that he sells on his website. If you don't mind being a little bit loud and proud about your freedom, I think you're going to find stuff there you will absolutely love. So here's an off-the-wall question. 
Is our news media playing up scary stories right now to discourage us from traveling? Jeffrey Tucker, in an article on brownstone.org, wonders, are you being frightened not to travel? He says, in a blaring headline and an email alert, the forever fear-mongering New York Times has amplified a terrifying story from Mexico of four Americans who went across the border for medicine. Two ended up dead. Now, these four Americans were kidnapped in Mexico border city. They were there seeking health care. They came under fire shortly after entering the city of Matamoros from Brownsville, Texas. The FBI is offering a $50,000 reward for their return and the arrest of the kidnappers. Well, they got two of them back alive. Two were not alive. But Jeffrey Tucker says the headline triggers every nightmare scenario. It was further covered by all the mainstream news with the conclusion, shootouts, shootouts in Matamoros were so bad on Friday that the U.S. consulate issued an alert about the danger and local authorities warned people to shelter in place. So the State Department joined in, issuing a travel advisory. In fact, this is the fourth warning about, about Mexico issued just this year. Are you getting the message, message yet? Jeffrey Tucker asks, well, don't go there. Certainly don't go there to get medicines you can only get by prescription in the U.S. Don't bypass the U.S. medical system. In fact, just forget about Mexico entirely. It's a cesspool of treachery and bloodshed. Now, he says it's all very interesting, especially when you consider that many American cities have never been more dangerous. Atlanta alone has seen more than two dozen murders this year, and Chicago and New York haven't been this dangerous in decades. If the U.S. were the subject of a travel advisory, at this point, it would be at the top of the list. But he says the thing about Mexico is that it was open during the pandemic lockdowns. So it was one of the few places that Americans could go. Once they got there, many found that they loved it because it's beautiful, generally safe in cities, and much more so than the U.S. cities. The dollar goes extremely far. <clears throat> in addition to having a more accessible medical system, a rich culture, fresh food, and excellent nightlife, and so on. Bloomberg estimates that U.S. professional migration to Mexico increased 85% from 2019 to 2022. And that's for a reason. In fact, he says there is a, there is in ev this is in evidence in many neighborhoods in Mexico City. Spending two weeks there in January, he says, I can report there are whole areas of the city that feel like Fifth Avenue, New York City in the old days, complete with high fashion and designer dogs. So might certain people in Washington be unhappy about losing so many U.S. residents to Mexico? Well, Jeffrey Tucker says perhaps so, but it's nothing like what these wild State Department warnings indicate. No doubt there's an attempt to discourage this enormous outflow. Mexico, on the other hand, welcomes it with open arms, granting six-month stays upon entering and happily renewing without this limit, or this without limit, rather. He says the influx has been wonderful for the Mexican economy. So, if not Mexico, well, then where else can we go? Well, he says the U.S. now has travel advisories out for the following. Israel, West Bank, Gaza, El Salvador, Gambia, Honduras, Guatemala... Burma, UAE, Togo, Russia, Burundi, Sweden, Pakistan, Lebanon, Iran, Boulevard, uh, Bolivia, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Liberia, Antarctica. Oh, man, I was planning on going there anyways. Anyway, Palau, Mali, uh, Uganda, China, Cayman, uh, Venezuela, Colombia, Iraq. I mean, there's, there's probably a list of about 20, 25 different destinations. Most of these... 
Uh, some of them seem pretty pretty remote. Some of them, not so much. But that's just in the last six months. The UK, by the way, is one of the places where there are travel advisories. Now, he highlighted El Salvador and Sweden because both of them are on the hit list of the U.S. right now. The former for having adopted Bitcoin as legal currency and the latter for being one of the few nations in the world to reject lockdowns. By the way, Nicaragua did not lock down either. But what about that U.K. travel advisory? What does it say? Country summary. Terrorist groups continue plotting possible attacks in the United Kingdom. Terrorists may attack with little or no warning, targeting tourist locations, transportation hubs, markets, shopping malls, local government facilities, hotels, clubs, restaurants, places of worship, parks, major sporting and cultural events, educational institutions, airports, and other public areas. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, Criminy, that sounds absolutely terrifying. The only thing is that people in the UK today report nothing like this. Yes, following the disaster of the last three years, cultures and economies all over the world are massively degraded and crime is also up everywhere. But to essentially stop traveling anywhere in the world so that we're all trapped in our own countries no matter how bad it gets, that seems crazy. Even Canada is subject to a travel advisory. Why? You guessed it. COVID. Got to keep flattening that curve. Jeffrey Tucker says it's time we learn to take all this fear-mongering with a grain of salt. He says, my worry is that there's, some, there's much more going on besides the usual abundance of caution. What if there's some grand master plan to essentially reverse the triumph of travel technology that began about a century ago and take us back in time to the point that we are all forever trapped in our locales no matter what? Well, these days we can't rule out anything. Fauci is on record regretting the last 12,000 years of technological progress. He wanted lockdowns to last forever. We know this because he has written this. Then you have the movement for 15-minute cities in which our activity is restricted. By the way, that's a topic, if you haven't delved into it, it's worth looking at because you're starting to see even U.S. politicians, hey, these 15-minute cities seem like a great idea. Until you consider that uh, they're really just big open-air prisons, or could be very easily. Jeffrey Tucker says the lockdowns of 2020 targeted travel. It was international, yes, but it was also domestic. You could not go from state to state without quarantining for two weeks between trips. That made it very difficult, even treacherous, to go anywhere. Together with stay-at-home orders, we essentially we did essentially reverse the great liberal triumph of the freedom of movement. And let us not forget the incredible attack on the cruise industry. It was demonized as nothing but a disease spreader. Yet those days are gone, but what if those days were merely shock and awe to get us used to the idea of staying put? After all, the attack on fossil fuels is consistent with that. An electric drone is no way to recreate the great age of travel. Not even a hot air balloon would be legal under the idea of a zero-carbon world. He says, it's all a vision of the future I've called techno-primitivism. Massively reducing our standard of living, of living, reducing us all to food foragers restricted in our movements, but living under the lordship of data-collecting technological companies in league with a ruling class that hasn't flown commercial in years in any case. Once you look at it this way, the nonstop fear-mongering about international travel by the U.S. State Department starts to make sense. The glorious world celebrated by Jules Verne is supposed to come to an end, replaced by something even worse than feudalism. It's not socialism either, which for all its problems at least pretended to favor industrial civilization and progress. Under techno-primitivism, 
The idea of material progress and freedom is replaced entirely by consistently revanchist longing for the masses of people while the ruling class lives well in privatized splendor. Now, you could say it's all a mistake, but all this stuff happened. Churches were closed, weddings and funerals shut down, house parties stopped, civic clubs ended, demonizing singing, restricting even interstate travel. And it's consistent with a theory out there that has turned against all forms of progress as we know that term from the past. So let's hope the lockdown years were aberrant, but Jeffrey Tucker says it would be wiser to see them as a possible template for what some sectors of elite society really do have in store. The key, com- the key to compliance, it's the same always and everywhere. Keep us in fear. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I've been seeing a lot of talk lately about ESG, and I think a lot of this has been centered in the fact that you have a number of state legislatures right now pushing back hard, like crafting official policy, passing laws that say, you know, you cannot force ESG on companies that uh, that want to do business within a particular state. <clears throat> ESG, for, for lack of a better explanation, because I'm certainly not an expert on it, is environmental, social, and I forget what the G stands for. Anyway, it's it's basically having the correct attitudes towards the environment and 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 having the correct social attitudes and 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 it's it it really it's about uh, collectivism, but uh, but climate alarmism dr- drives a lot of that ESG thinking. And you see the people who are defending it, and they'll be like, well, you know, we've got to get away from those horrible polluting fossil fuels foisted on us for the last 100 years. And they totally look at it as if that was the worst thing that they could have possibly done. Really, what was the alternative? I mean, seriously, what what alternative existed to fossil fuels? I mean, I'll, I'll grant you that, uh, you know, coal-fired power plants... Definitely can put some some pretty good coal and soot and stuff out there into the atmosphere. Even burning oil, yes, <clears throat> there, it doesn't come without some pollution. But see, I'm also looking at the other side of the coin and seeing how easy did we make it to transport everything from a letter to a package to, you know, material goods and foods all the way across the world and still have it be affordable when it arrives. I think it's remarkable. But uh, it's also very clear that right now, anything that is fossil fuel related is, is considered, you know, it's, it's, it provokes a reaction similar to how a vampire would react to a bushel of garlic. The ESG advocates know they don't, they don't want anything to do with fossil fuels. Crazy stuff. And it seems pretty likely that at some point, climate crisis is going to be used to seize control of our lives exactly as was done with COVID. Now, I've got a couple of great articles here. I'm going to start with one from Edward Ring. This is from amgreatness.com. Renewables aren't renewable. Subtitle, when key facts or why key facts are dismissed by America's elites is a story of corruption, collusion, megalomania, greed, cowardice, intellectual negligence, and delusional mass psychosis. 
Edward Ring says, Today in America, there are obvious disconnects between observable reality and the narratives we get from the corporate special interests controlling the news we consume, along with politicians who are supposedly elected to represent us. Now, this is nothing new. Elites have defined America's destiny throughout its history. The only difference today is that the Internet, despite ongoing crackdowns, still manages to deliver an unprecedented volume of contrarian perspectives to millions of people. We aren't any freer or less manipulated today than we ever were. We're just more aware of it. What may be different today, however, is the misanthropic folly of America's current energy policies. He says America's ruling elites are not only imposing these policies on everyone living here, but they're attempting to impose them on impose them everywhere on the earth. By now, it should be beyond serious debate that renewable energy cannot possibly scale adequately to replace fossil fuels. Worse still, renewable energy systems are even less sustainable than fossil fuels and cause more environmental destruction. Renewables also fail to offer significant reductions in carbon emissions and in some cases actually cause more carbon emissions. Why these facts are dismissed by America's elites is a story of corruption, collusion, megalomania, greed, cowardice, intellectual negligence, and delusional mass psychosis. Modern political theory offers solace to cynics who believe all democracies are actually just managed shams by suggesting pluralism and representative government are nonetheless at least approximated if there's a competition between the powerful elites running a nation. But what if there is no inter-elite competition in the realm of ideas? What happens when every one of these elites believes in the same thing? When it comes to renewables and net zero by, 2020, by 2050, that's what we have in America today. And Edward Ring says, as a result, Americans face a future of perpetual scarcity, rationed, algorithmically micromanaged access to energy, punitive pricing for energy use over government-mandated thresholds, and a wasteland of landscapes ruined by solar farms, wind farms, battery farms, distribution lines, open pit mines, evaporation ponds and dumps, all the destructive consequences of industrial-scale renewables development. At this rate, the blind rush to eliminate fossil fuel and rely solely on renewables will cause catastrophic worldwide shortages of energy, spawning deadly poverty and desperate wars. So the big takeaway here is renewables are not renewable. A recent post by the respected investment blogger Wolf Richter, compiling data from the Energy Information Administration, reported renewables generated 22.6% of all U.S. electricity in 2022. That's a record high. Proponents of renewables consider this achievement as validating their strategy, but the devil is in the details. To begin with, hydropower accounted for 6.1% of that total. But hydropower is under relentless assault by environmentalists. And even if more hydroelectric dams could be built instead of demolished, which is the current trend, the best sites have already been developed. Okay, what about wind, which contributed 10.1% of all electricity generated in 2022, and solar, which added another 4.8%? To put the question into relevant context, first consider what it's going to take to get America's economy to a net zero state by relying solely on wind and solar. To do this, we cannot merely calculate how much additional wind and solar generating capacity would be necessary to replace all the other sources of electricity generation in the United States. 
The residential, commercial, industrial, and transportation sectors in the U.S. economy rely on direct inputs of natural gas and petroleum for 62% of the energy they require. Electricity is used only for the remaining 38%, which means that 14.9% of that wind and solar actually only delivered 5.7% of all energy consumed in the United States in 2022. Curse you mathematicians for being able to figure that out, but his math does add up. Merely electrifying the transportation sector in the U.S. would require total electricity generation to nearly double. To electrify the entire U.S. economy would would require total electrical generation to triple. And to do this using only wind and solar would require the current installed base of wind and solar to expand by a factor of 18 times. And the process would involve far more than erecting 18 times more wind turbines and solar farms than we already have. There remains as well what is euphemistically called a balance of plant. In the case of wind and solar, balance of plant refers to thousands of miles of additional high-voltage power lines and utility-scale battery backup systems. Since most parts of the United States, such as the densely populated Northeast, do not have reliable solar energy and are not the windiest parts of the country, it would be necessary to transmit wind energy from the Plain States and solar power from the southern latitudes. At the same time, hundreds, if not thousands, of gigawatt hours of battery storage would also be required. Now, Peter Zeehan, an economist whose new book, The End of the World is Just Beginning, should be mandatory reading for anyone promoting renewables. But he had this to say about relying on wind and solar power, along with transmission lines and battery backup. Quote, such infrastructure would be on the scale and scope that humanity has not yet attempted. Now, from here, the article goes into the resources required for renewable energy, including, you know, the the kind of mined materials that you need. There's a great deal of detail here. He explains why electrical vehicles are not sustainable and then explores some of the alternatives. He says maybe the money being directed to uh, retooling the entire energy uh, sector to adopt renewables should instead be redirected to research and commercialize breakthrough technologies. Maybe direct synthesis of carbon dioxide into liquid fuel or fusion power or factory-farmed high-yield biofuel from algae. Maybe something we can't yet imagine. If politicians are panicked over climate change, then put money into research. Because today's renewable energy technology will destroy the planet and the people. Now, there is an upside to green technology when it's commercially competitive. Hybrid SUVs, which carry a small battery and electric motor to recover energy from braking and downhill coasting, well, they can get 40 miles per gallon. Advanced hybrids might utilize onboard generators, natural gas internal combustion engines, and smaller batteries. They could get much higher fuel efficiency. So why is California banned emerging hybrid technologies, instead mad- mandating that new cars have no combustion engines whatsoever? Good question. Critics of the renewables mania, he says, correctly identify climate crisis passions as the new popular religion for a postmodern culture that's lost its way. But it's the elites who have truly lost their way. They've not only transmuted rather their natural human need for meaning and purpose into embracing the green religion, but they've also become so intoxicated with their wealth and their power that they've convinced themselves they are uniquely qualified to control the destiny of the world. They've forgotten the lessons of history. Lost in their own hubris, they're taking this beautiful world and everyone on it straight to hell. Well, he doesn't exactly mince words, does he? 
again, this is from Edward Ring. I have a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I hope you'll check it out for yourself. We'll take a quick break and be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Keeping on that same topic of ESG and uh, climate change. One thing that I have noticed is that uh, this is a concept, the climate crisis, I guess I should say, has really been drilled into the, the minds and hearts of young people. And, and just so, so we're clear here, I'm not saying and they're all stupid and I'm not. Um, there's, there's so much that I don't know, but I do know this. From the moment the earth was created, its climate has not been in a state of stasis and, you know, it only recently started changing when man arrived and started polluting. The climate is always in a state of change. Furthermore, I believe there are cycles to our climate change. And if you really want to see some fascinating stuff, go to suspiciousobservers or spaceweathernews.com and you'll learn a lot of stuff that uh, is not widely talked about, but still very scientifically explainable. And it has to do with electromagnetic fields. It has to do with the sun affecting the, the climate, not just on planet Earth, but on every single planet within our solar system. Truly fascinating stuff. But my point is, you know, when, well, there's a huge climate change taking place on Mars. Yeah. Is that because of man and internal combustion engines? Not hardly. So it kind of makes you think maybe people are a little premature in, you know, going green, you know, to save the planet, which also involves turning over power and money to uh, people who politically want to run things. If you can just do this, why we can save the planet. Yeah, I've, I've heard uh, lots of promises before. That, that sounds just like another load of politicians' promises. But back to the idea, why is it resonating so strong with young people? Doug Casey did an interview with International Man where he talks about the rise of climate brats and other useful idiots. Now, he's not just name-calling. He's putting this in the context of uh, there's, there's some pretty serious activism that's taking place here. Webster's Dictionary defines a useful idiot as a naive or credulous person who can be manipulated or exploited to advance a cause or political agenda. Lenin is thought to have originated the phrase when referring to communist sympathizers in the West. So Doug Casey is asked, what is your take on this term and is it still applicable today? His answer says, today's make-believe democracies are overflowing with useful idiots. They latch onto one lame brain notion after another, perhaps to give meaning to their confused and pointless lives. They're a bit like cats chasing the red dot from their master's laser pointer. The Ukraine, COVID, sex perversions, Trump, racism, climate change. It's one thing after another. Climate change is one of the central scams being promoted by the World Economic Forum as part of their great reset. It seems that everything com that comes out of the World Economic Forum, he says, I can't think of any exceptions, is antithetical to the traditional values of Western civilization, prominently including free markets and personal liberty. Now, he says, we've discussed the COVID hysteria and what it looks like, and what looks like, rather, World War III starting in Ukraine. But he says the biggest thing with the longest legs is climate change. Full disclosure, he says, I believe in climate change. The climate's been changing constantly since the world came together about four and a half billion years ago, and it will continue to change. So the problem, however, isn't climate change itself, 
But the process of indoctrinating the public, especially young people, with the belief that humanity is destroying Mother Earth. They're given snippets of science like the fact that, well, the world has generally been warming since the mid-19th century. Well, sure it has. Because the planet went through what's known as the Little Ice Age from the 16th through the 19th centuries. It has been cyclically warming for the past 150 years. As a matter of fact, the world has been warming since the end of the last great ice age about 12,000 years ago. The global warming people have found a great excuse for changing not just the economy, but the way literally everything works. He says, my view is that they're basically anti-human. They actually hate and fear people. It's why Yuval Noah Harari, the mincing court intellectual of the World Economic Forum, refers to them as useless eaters. Now, he may be right, but what's insane is that someone like him could gain the power to make serious decisions. People like him applaud massive population reduction. Especially, it would appear, of what Hillary called deplorables in the Western world. They see people as the enemy. Some idiots among them are useful, but they're all expendable. Now, it's easy for the elite, who are actually parasites, to influence those that they refer to as the masses. That's partly because the average person has no grip on either science or history. Any episode of Jay Leno's Jaywalking or Mark Dice's current equivalent on YouTube offers plenty of anecdotal proof. They'll ask what seem like average, recent, reasonably intelligent people uh, the simplest of questions, and they can't answer any of them. A typical response to who won the American Civil War might be, uh, the Germans? The only questions they can answer correctly are about pop and sports stars. So his point is it's absolutely true. The world is full of useful idiots. They're useful to the ruling classes who want to change everything. In fact, just last week, the Aspen Institute, one of the world's best-known think tanks, sponsored a climate change conference featuring Kamala Harris and Gloria Estefan as the twin keynote speakers. It's pathetic comedy. A couple of useful idiots are talking to an audience of useful idiots about something that none of them know absolutely anything about. Now, at this point, Doug is asked about, uh, are people really being duped into supporting an agenda they don't fully understand? What's really going on here? Popular culture, the media, Hollywood, academia, Wall Street, politicians, and other authority figures all are reinforcing this climate alarmist narrative. So what's really taking place? Doug Casey's answer is that, well, the fact is that Congress critters live in an echo chamber, and they're there to pass laws and regulations governing what other people can and can't do. And for that reason, they all believe that they have a right to push their agendas. They're narcissists who love power. In fact, that's why they're in Washington. Congress is largely populated by people like AOC, the race-baiting socialist bartender, the mentally disabled John Fetterman, and George Santos, the pathological liar. Almost every Congress critter is an embarrassment. They didn't run for Congress because they're good people, but because they're power-hungry narcissists. Useful idiots are annoying enough when you see them in sports, the media, and Hollywood, but they tend to concentrate in Congress where they're actively dangerous. So then the question goes to, uh, to climate brats, particularly these young Westerners with psychological problems, gluing themselves to priceless paintings in various museums. There's another group that threw cake on the Mona Lisa, another threw tomato soup on a Vincent Van Gogh painting. The perpetrators of these acts did so to draw attention to a fictitious climate emergency. And Doug is asked, what is your take? He says, well, they're trying to draw attention to lunatic beliefs by destroying great works of art. That alone is proof that they are, in fact, 
deranged. These people have serious psychological problems. They aren't that they aren't severely punished, but are taken seriously is just proof of how degraded the West has become. But it's getting just what it deserves, which is very sad. He says it's one thing to try to get the attention of people so they listen to what you have to say, but destroying the great art of Western civilization is really where their heads are. Destroying Western civilization is an active part of their insane agenda. They're deeply unhappy with themselves. They blame it on civilization. Their severe psychological problems are illustrated by the kind of people populating the Biden administration, like the, the tranny who dresses up in an admiral's costume, to, to Pete Buttigieg, who plays the female part of a couple with his boyfriend, to the former assistant secretary in Biden's office of nuclear energy, who was caught stealing women's clothing again and again. Biden himself, his attorney general, Merrick Garland, almost all the top military people, it's all part of a syndrome. So where is this trend headed? Well, Doug Casey says trends in motion tend to stay in motion and even accelerate until they reach a crisis. And he says, that's where we're heading right now. Even if we don't reach a crack-up crisis, which I suspect we will, even if saner heads prevail and start to reverse the trend, it's going to take many, many years first to slow the trend and then reverse it. So there's not much cause for optimism. So what are the investment uh, implications? Okay, if you've been wondering about that kind of thing, he says, put money in things that everybody has been taught to hate, but that are necessary for civilization to continue. That means energy, uranium, oil, natural gas, coal, metals like gold and copper, resources in general. Now, fortunately, the stocks of companies that produce these things are very cheap, with many selling for single-digit P&Es, and double-digit dividends. The mining and energy industries are very un-PC. ESG dictates you shouldn't put money into any kind of extractive industry. It's generally very expensive or impossible to get permits for development, so the stocks are very cheap. And he says, I'd like to believe that reality will reassert itself, and these things will go up a, a lot. Now, the general stock market is still way overpriced, plus a crypto bubble still exists, evidenced by things like Dogecoin, which was created as a joke and serves no useful purpose, yet still has a market cap of around $11 billion. He says, I think that can almost be used as an indicator of how much of a bubble the economy is still in. I always love Doug Casey's take on stuff. He really has, a, I think, a solid grasp and, and I think a reasonable approach, even if, if he's using the term, you know, useful idiots. Remember, he's not the one who coined that phrase. That was Lenin. And sometimes it actually fits. Thanks again for tuning in. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, please visit thebrianheidshow.com. Click on show notes at the bottom of the page. You'll see a subscribe button. Drop me your email address. I'll send you the notes every day that I do the show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.